The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And this is something that I think the U.S. would need to take seriously, that, that has it forgotten um, how to play to its own strengths and, and, and whether it can defend its model anymore as the source for, for peace and prosperity and, and greater freedom. And I, I worry a little bit that the Europeans are now also moving to play that same game. So the Europeans are obsessed now with strategic autonomy and technological self-sufficiency. And since they have the ability through the Brussels effect to influence the regulatory environment around the world, if the Europeans are also now converting their regulations towards the instruments of protectionism, I think that's exactly what the European companies are then confronting uh, when they are trying to operate in third markets. Because then uh, the Brussels effect, it is a effective tool to export good and bad regulations alike. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 12, 2023. The United States, the European Union, and China are involved in intense conflicts to control the digital economy, both within their borders and globally. A new Bradford's new book, entitled Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology, provides a framework for understanding and assessing these conflicts. I spoke to Bradford about why the EU rights-driven model is in ascendancy in the West and what this means for the U.S. tech companies that are the primary targets of EU regulation and for innovation more generally. We also spoke about the tech wars between the United States and China, whether U.S. techno-protectionism is a good idea, how far the United States has departed from its 1990s-style internet freedom agenda, and how well China's state-driven model is faring in authoritarian countries. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 12, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. Anu, your book is entitled Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. So start us off by telling us what technology you have in mind and what the battle is. So, um, Jack, I um, mainly focus in this book on digital technologies, consumer-facing digital services and products offered by the leading platforms. So there's a lot of conversation about Google and uh, Meta and Microsoft and Amazon and Apple and TikTok, but then also, to some extent, hardware. So I discuss Huawei and I talk about Apple's hardware business. So that's the, generally the range of technologies that I cover. Okay, so what's the battle about? 
So the battle is really about what is the presence and the future of our digital economy. So the argument is that there are different ways to regulate technology, and we have these different leading jurisdictions that offer a different vision for digital economy and how to govern that. And the the book takes on the question of whether one of these regulatory models, the American, the Chinese, or the European model, is ultimately going to be more influential. So that is this one, one battle. The other battle that I focus, in addition to this horizontal one, is a vertical battle. So the book asks the question whether technology ultimately can be governed uh, by governments. So whether the governments or the tech companies themselves are ultimately more influential in in shaping the digital economy. Okay, I'm going to focus most of my questions on the former, what you call the horizontal battle. And basically, the issue is, will the China model, the EU model, or the US model prevail in, in governing these digital technologies globally? I mean, both within their borders and outside of their borders. So why don't we just why don't you just start off by telling us the three models? Great. So um, I, I start by discussing the American model because to me that is the foundation of the digital economy as we know it. So the U.S. model is what I call a, a market-driven model. So it is a model that centers on free speech, the free internet, and incentives to innovate. So the idea is that we want to minimize the intervention by the government and largely then hand over the governance of the digital economy to the tech companies themselves. So it is a techno-libertarian, techno-optimistic vision for the digital world. So then in contrast to that, I discuss the Chinese model, which I call a state-driven model. So the goal of the Chinese government is really to strengthen uh, China's uh, economy, make China a technological superpower. But the government also wants to leverage technology as a tool for political control, surveillance, censorship, and propaganda in order then to entrench uh, the goals of the Chinese Communist Party. So that is the, the, the Chinese model. And then there's the European model. So here the book takes the view that this public conversation that often focuses on the US and China and how the rest of the world is then forced to choose between these two inevitable technological superpowers. And the book argues that the Europe is not forced to, nor willing to, choose between either the US or, the, uh, or China. Instead, it is carving its own path forward and it is uh, projecting its own values around what I call a rights-driven model. So this is a human-centric vision for digital economy where what is central is the protection of fundamental rights of individuals, the democratic structures of the society, but also a notion of greater fairness. So redistribution of the gains from the digital economy so that also the consumers or smaller companies or the public at large benefits from digital transformation. And these battle, these various models engage one another and, and result in a variety of conflicts that we're going to discuss. I want to start off by asking you about the U.S. market model. The book begins, and one of the main foils throughout the book is the problem of what to do in terms of regulation, basically about the large U.S. platforms, um, the, the companies you mentioned at the beginning, and especially the social media platforms, but not only them. 
And you describe them, these private firms, as being enormously powerful. As, and you ba basically describe and ascribe to the surveillance capitalism model, which is that these are private surveillance machines that uh, they exercise enormous control over uh, the individuals who use them. And there's something to worry about. And that basically, one way of looking at the battle between the United States and the EU models is a, a, a battle about what to do about, if anything, about these firms and the various threats they, they pose. But it seems to me that the private U.S. firms have a lot of the characteristics that the China state model does, except that it happens in the private sector. I mean, just about everything you say about the China state model in terms of wanting to have massive surveillance, about massive control, control of speech and the like, is something that the private firms do, albeit with a completely different valence, obviously, not promoting the same aims. So I'm just wondering if it's fair. I'm just wondering how you think of that comparison. And I wonder if that requires us to qualify this idea that the U.S. market approach is an approach that promotes freedom. And if what it's really promoting is that these massive firms are able to exercise surveillance and control in the way you, in the way you discuss in the book. So I, I really like the framing, uh, Jack. And I think it really allows you to ask the question whether all surveillance is equal and whether we should treat differently surveillance by private companies, by governments. Is Chinese surveillance more worrisome than, than surveillance by the U.S. government? And yes, ultimately, both the U.S. and China do engage in forms of surveillance. The market-driven model as such, I describe exactly like you say, as the model of surveillance capitalism. So we talk about surveillance by tech companies. So we're mainly using individuals' data or exploiting that data towards the commercial ends of these tech companies. So your private data is central to the business models of these companies that can leverage then that data towards their commercial ends. And in that process, they compromise your, your privacy. And then there are many other sort of harmful uh, side effects, whether we talk about disinformation or hate speech or other toxic uh, culture in these platforms. But to me, it is different than when we talk about surveillance by, by states. So one thing is that you uh, have this commercial exploitation of your data. The other thing is that your data is part of the surveillance apparatus of governments that ultimately can also exercise coercive force over individuals. And here, I would, I would uh, consider that the Chinese model that is actually cracking down to some extent on the private surveillance by its companies, but at the same time refusing to do the same when it comes to the states, the Chinese government's ability to surveillance individuals. So China certainly is drawing a distinction between the two. So obviously, we might say that there's no distinction in China because whatever is in the, in, the, in the hands of the private companies is given over to Beijing upon request. Whereas in the US, we can say that, yes, we learn from Edward Snowden revelations that in some instances, the US tech companies do conduct surveillance for US governments. They do hand over that data. But there's also many instances where these US tech companies are challenging the government orders to hand over the data that is requested from them, whether for law enforcement or national security purposes. So it is not obvious that when your data is then uh, exploited by private companies, automatically it becomes the property of the U.S. government. 
But but here, Jack, I may uh, mention, it was interesting, I had a conversation with, with one of the European Commission officials, and I was asking him about Europe's attitude towards TikTok. It was at the, t- at the time when there were this intense questioning of uh, TikTok's CEO in US Congress, and I asked whether the Europeans are as concerned about Chinese surveillance. And his response to me was, we don't distinguish between surveillance by Chinese or Americans or surveillance by our own governments. Our job is to protect the fundamental rights to privacy of Europeans from all kinds of surveillance. Okay, that's a great lead-in to talk about what, one of the main points of your book is that the EU model is in the ascendancy, at least in the West. Is that correct? Yes, I, I make the argument um, that ultimately it is the, the U.S. model that has overreached. So these U.S. tech companies have become too powerful. And yes, they have provided many products and services that the consumers, internet users around the world use, enjoy, and have come to depend on. But at the same time, I think the U.S. got more than it bargained for with, with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So the idea that this free speech model, this free market model, just seemed to know no boundaries, which then allowed these companies to grow so powerful and also then engage in practices that caused harm in the United States, but also across the world. And that created a backlash. And that then gave an impetus for the regulators, predominantly in Europe, but now increasingly across the world, for the governments to step in and start reining in these tech companies. So there's increasingly this view in Europe, and that is now endorsed by many others, that it is the European model that does rely on greater regulation of these companies that best enhances public interest, checks corporate power, preserves the democratic structures of the society. So that, to some extent, then is is what is giving more influence to the Europeans. So the US model is too permissive, whereas the Chinese model is too oppressive. So hence, the European model is getting the balance right. Okay, I have a lot of questions about that. The first thing is when you say that the American model is too permissive, that's a that's a normative claim. Mm-hmm. What is the what is the normative framework? Because and, and this is a general question because you and correct me if I'm wrong on this or anything else, but you basically events a, a preference for the EU model. I think the book is a modified defense in one el- one element of the book is it's a modified defense of the of the EU model. Is that fair? Well, I think it's it's fair, Jack. I would say that the book's primary argument is descriptive, that it is describing what are the drivers of these different models, what are the implications, how they manifest themselves. But yes, I do attach normative significance to these different consequences. So yes, I am more critical of digital authoritarianism of the Chinese model. But I am also critical of the what I call the overreach of the U.S. tech companies. So that then provides a normative defense of the, the European model. But but as, as you know, the book also then criticizes certain aspects of the European model. Yeah. So just remind us what the Brussels effect is and why the EU model is able to have such a big impact on American companies, not just in Europe, but elsewhere? 
Yeah, so um, Jack Brussels effect is the term that I coined um, earlier and then a, published a book in 2020. So the Brussels effect, how the European Union rules the world. So very provocative title, but I happily stand, stand by the title. So here the idea is that the EU is a global regulatory superpower. So the EU is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world. And there are very few global companies that can afford not to trade in the EU. So as the price for accessing the European market, they need to obey with European regulations. But often it is in the business interest of these companies to extend the European regulation to govern their global conduct or global production because they want to avoid the cost of complying with multiple different regulatory regimes. So the EU is powerful simply by regulating its own single market. And it is then the global companies that are transposing these European rules across the global markets. Okay. So, and that, and you continue that argument in this book in saying, in saying that the EU model is, is in the ascendancy in the West. And so I'm just wondering, how would you characterize, I mean, there's a lot of regulation of digital goods by the European Union. Can, can you just give us a flavor of what, of what the approach is in substance? You go through a lot of different regulations and acts in the book, or at least you mention a lot of them. I mean, what makes this approach attractive in substance? Why, why is this form of regulation a better approach to regulating digital goods than the more libertarian U.S. approach? Yes, yeah, so I, I think there's actually some of the goals that the EU has had that is driving its rights-driven regulatory agenda are actually shared by the US. So both models believe that the fundamental rights of individuals matter. Both believe that democracy should be a centerpiece of a digital society. But they choose very different ways of trying to achieve those outcomes. So the Europeans believe that ultimately we cannot leave it for the tech companies to say that they do protect our rights, including the right to privacy, or that this political freedom and democracy is maximized in an unregulated digital sphere. And I think we, we see the track record of these leading tech companies to fail in their commitment to protect our privacy and fail to advance a robust civic discourse and democracy. So ultimately, the, the idea that the U.S. had that we can enhance democracy by basically setting these companies free, opening our uh, Internet for free speech, where all voices can contribute to conversation and advance the conversation and democratic discourse, that just turned out to be a false promise. So in many ways, I think the U.S. got more than I said earlier, more than it bargained for with Section 230. If you just look at what happened with the, with the January 2021 insurrection in the, in the capital, which was fueled by social media discourse um, and, and lies about a stolen election. Would that have been, in some sense, impermissible in Europe? Would the European regulate? Why didn't? Are you suggesting that the European regulations would have not allowed that discourse? Yes. And if you look at now some of the European regulations around content moderation, so the Europeans have had their codes of conduct on hate speech, but also disinformation. But most recently, that the law from last year, the Digital Services Act, that is, that is taking it a step further, that is imposing binding obligations on tech companies to make sure that there's more transparency and there's more accountability 
on how they uh, moderate content, and that they also have a binding obligation to mitigate systemic risks on their platforms, including, for instance, the threats to democracy that can follow from disinformation. So in that sense, the Europeans just have been adamant that that you do need to have the government step in and you do need to have binding rules. So there's rule of law and democratic oversight that is needed for these goals uh, to be accomplished. Uh, So I accept that. I mean, you're basically arguing that the United States underregulates, but mm-hmm. how do we know that Europe doesn't overregulate? I just don't understand. Still, I mean, what concrete aspects of, of of the of the manifold European regulations of the digital space? What concrete aspects of them are attractive normatively? I mean, I, I, sometimes in the book, uh, I mean, the book argues that more regulation is needed, mm-hmm. but. Let me put it this way: Is is the current EU regulation optimal? Because I every time I look at the EU regulations and laws, and I haven't studied them deeply, but I have a very hard time understanding. There's certainly a lot more control and many more limitations and a lot of bureaucracy, but I have a hard time understanding concretely how how the how those regulations improve the digital space. So can you just give us a couple of examples? Um, yes. Yeah, so, Jack, actually, one of my bottom lines is that I think even Europe underregulates rather than overregulates. And by way of Europe being very successful in promulgating these regulations, but less successful in actually enforcing them and implementing, yeah. which then takes us to the question whether and how difficult it is to actually regulate these tech companies. But I do defend both uh, descriptively, but then normatively as well, the Europeans attempt to enhance the individual's right to privacy with regulations like the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. And as a result of that regulation, we do see a completely different conversation around data privacy around the world. So yes, we still have rampant privacy violations that take place uh, all the time, but I think our expectations Uh, We much more inform our expectations around what is expected from these companies in terms of privacy have shifted. And we are now seeing the Europeans ramping up their enforcement so that we actually are starting to see a change in the business model of these companies. How do they actually get consent from the users for the data that they are using and so forth? So another example, we talked about content moderation. So I think it is fair to say that this disinformation, hate speech that is online, it has created a toxic environment that is really harmful. And no, the Europeans have not been entirely successful in eliminating this kind of speech online, and they never will. But I would argue that we certainly are, they are right in in stating that as the goal and then making strides towards creating a safer and healthier online environment. Third example, Jack, I would say antitrust. So I think it is undisputed that the digital economy is extremely concentrated. And this is no longer to me what this idea of free market and and free enterprise in the US uh, uh, model envisions. So these companies have become too powerful and the EU has tried to rein them in. So again, I think the EU hasn't done enough to successfully entrench that goal into market outcomes. But again, here we see now an attempt 
to, to gain new tools. There's a digital markets act that we can talk about that the Europeans have adopted that doesn't only impose fines, but that is actually going into the business models of these companies and expecting them to change the way they do business. So last question on this, on the speech control and, and content moderation. I mean, what do you say to the libertarian who says that the only thing worse than misinformation and hate speech in the private realm is the government trying to decide which speech is valid and the dangers of the government determining you know, the content of acceptable speech? So, Junk, I don't think it is an unreasonable argument to be made. And I think Europeans are extremely concerned about this one as well. And to many Europeans, I think content moderation is the hardest piece of this digital regulatory puzzle because it's so easy to get wrong. It is very easy to then go too far in restricting speech that is actually beneficial. But the Europeans are on balance more sensitive to, for instance, hate speech, given that the history of, of Europe has shown what are the sort of worst instances of hate speech and what it does to the society. So if you look at some of the European regulations, it is a very different way of going about content moderation than China. Europeans are very committed to the freedom of expression and they are trying to get the balance right. But ultimately, Jack, I think the question is that line drawing is so difficult. So who do you trust in drawing that line. And the European view is that, yes, even though tech companies on a day-to-day -day basis will be drawing those lines, there's nobody in Brussels who can check every tweet or every Facebook post in advance. But we need to at least have transparency that we understand how the tech companies are drawing those lines. And then we can have a democratic conversation about how they are wielding their power. Staying on the EU front, you have an interesting argument about you take on the claim that the relatively heavy EU regulation of digital goods is bad for innovation. And you challenge that claim. Explain that. Yeah. So, Jack, I don't want to say, because I think it's incorrect, that all regulations are pro-innovation and the European regulation is the word that you used earlier, optimal. But at the same time, I think it is very often too easily said that because you regulate, there's an inevitable trade-off that you see less innovation. And then you, you just take examples of the thriving U.S. tech companies and the light regulatory regime. And you contrast that with the, with the Europeans. Everybody knows the GDPR. Can they name a European tech company? Hardly. So it is true that there is a massive technological gap between the U.S. and the EU, and the EU is far behind. But to me, digital regulation is not the problem. Even if the EU now repealed the GDPR, its privacy regulation, or refrained from going ahead with its plan AI regulation, we wouldn't suddenly see a tech industry booming in the EU. The same way that the, if the US now finally decided to move ahead and adopt, for instance, federal privacy law, or did decide to regulate AI, we would not see the US dismantle its, its advances in technology. So, so in the book, I offer then alternative explanation, what explains that the Europe's inability to compete with the US and the EU. So rather than digital regulation, I think there are four things that are more significant. So one is the absence of an integrated digital single market. So Europe is still very fragmented and these companies have a difficult time scaling in Europe 
when they are facing different regulatory regimes across the different European countries, whereas the US and Chinese tech companies can scale in an integrated domestic market. So digital single market is one thing. The second thing is there is a lack of deep and integrated capital markets in the EU. So the same thing, it is much harder for EU tech companies to raise funds for their innovations. They do fine in the early rounds, but later on, in more advanced financing rounds, they are often bought up by, let's say, U.S. investors, U.S. tech companies. So that's the second one. And the third one, and this is, this is interesting, this is both cultural and legal. So the bankruptcy laws and attitudes towards risk-taking. It is very costly for a tech company to fail in the EU. So bankruptcy laws are punitive. The culture discourages risk-taking, and that is not conducive to innovation. You need to take risks in order to have these big, massive successes that some of these U.S. companies have had. And you need to have the culture, like in the U.S., where failure is just sort of rite of passage, and then you move on, and then you raise more funds. And then, um, Jack, the fourth one, and this is, I think, really important. You have no innovations if you don't have innovators. And the U.S. has been extremely successful in recruiting the best talent from all over the world. So over 50% of our $1 billion startups in the U.S. have an immigrant founder. The EU has not managed to replicate that. And, and since we've talked a lot about these leading tech companies, if we just think about those leading tech companies and their founders. So Steve Jobs of Apple is a son of a Syrian immigrant. Jeff Bezos of Amazon is a second generation Cuban. Elon Musk of Tesla is South African. Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google, uh, is Russian. Eduardo Saverin, the co-founder of Facebook, is Brazilian. So this is a big part of the success story of the U.S. that the Europeans have just thus far not managed to replicate. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But let me ask you about that last thing. Let me make two points to see what you say. Um, one is, but isn't the reason that the U.S. is able to recruit better from around the world because, in effect, it's easier to move fast and break things in the libertarian, in the relatively libertarian American economic culture than it is to do in Europe? And then second, and relatedly, doesn't 
heavy the heavy regulation, the relatively heavy regulation in the EU, doesn't it have its biggest impact on young companies who are just starting out for whom it's more complicated and expensive and difficult to comply with heavy regulations than it is for the big boys who are the main targets? Now, maybe the EU rules have differential. Maybe you have to have a certain size for some of these rules to kick in. But it does seem like some of the some of the distinguishing factors are actually due to the relatively libertarian American ethos. Am I wrong about that? So, so let me take your second point first, because because I agree with that. So, one of my criticism of the European regulation is that regulations like the GDPR have indeed disproportionately become a burden for smaller companies that have fewer resources to comply with these regulations. And then inadvertently, they have entrenched the power of the big tech and and hence undermined this European goal of redistribution and fairness. And I think the EU is now aware of this cost. And if you look at the more recent regulations like the Digital Markets Act, which is an ex-ante competition regulation, antitrust regulation, or the Digital Services Act that is more about content moderation, transparency, and accountability. Those regulations are drafted explicitly to be asymmetrical. So they impose greater obligations on large companies. And the DMA, the Digital Markets Act, it's actually only targeting the largest gatekeepers. So the EU is now trying to eliminate exactly the concern that you correctly identified. But let me then also take this idea that, yes, part of the attraction for the ambitious entrepreneurs who, who want to make it big to come to the U.S. is that, that that provides the kind of environment within which they can thrive. So, yes, because they can move fast and break things. I think that's what you, what you, what you mentioned. It is more possible in the U.S. in some sense, but I don't think that they need to cause Atchmouth's collateral damage in the process as the the American market-driven regulatory model allows them to cause. So yes, where I endorse the US model is that this market-driven techno-libertarian in terms of, yes, let's have a very robust capital markets that does encourage risk-taking. Let's not set those gaps for compensation. Let's not have a really burdensome or punitive tax regime whereby your ability then to really enjoy the profits of your successes are so heavily taxed that you lose the incentive to to take those risks. So I think there's a lot that the the American market-driven model, which is part of the market-driven model, including thinking about capital markets or risk-taking, yes, it does serve entrepreneurs. But it also, there are many other reasons. Like one thing, Jack, is the the universities as a gateway. So the U.S. still provides a very attractive gateway for entrepreneurs by having world-class universities that are better platforms for these entrepreneurs to to get an education and they often stay and benefit the the U.S. US, uh, labor market afterwards. So what is, I've been following sort of, on and off, Europe trying to regulate U.S. firms going back to the 1990s. It may have been earlier than that, but that's when I started paying attention to it. And it seems like at 40,000 feet, it's a story about the American companies getting bigger and more powerful and Europe implementing bigger and more powerful regulations and imposing bigger and larger fines and a wider variety of uh, contexts and requiring various things under antitrust law as well. 
What what is the end point of this? I mean, is there ever a point? Is it possible that EU regulation will go too far? Because basically, the EU can, because of the Brussels effect, they have a lot of room to continue to regulate and regulate aggressively. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the market's so big, you're not going to have U.S. firms pulling out. I guess. I guess that's the question. Is there a point at which is the European market just too big? Does it mean they can regulate basically along whatever lines they want and the American firms will have to comply? You suggested a second ago some self-restraint within within Europe. So just talk about that issue. Yeah, so it's it's interesting, Jack. So recently there was a lot of conversation when Meta's new Threads app has been withheld from Europeans. So Meta said they are not going to, and they have not launched uh, threats in Europe because of regulatory constraints. So that then raised this conversation. Well, maybe the US tech companies just decide that they don't need Europe. So they have the power and the regulators in Europe do face the limits of their authority. So I don't think companies like Meta ultimately can abandon the European market. So OpenAI first said that, well, maybe we just don't go to Europe because of the planned AI regulation. A few days later, Sam Altman reversed that threat. The same way Google said that, well, we just took us a little longer before we launch our AI board, uh, the BART in the EU. So they have done it sometimes with delay. But there's a couple of reasons why I think, for instance, that Meta cannot prevail over the European regulators and say, you're regulating too much, so you're just not going to get our products. So one is that it is costly to forgo the European market still today, especially if you are a social media company and you cannot make up those users in China. So companies like Meta cannot just go to China and say that, okay, here is where we have billion uh, uh, internet users and we are just going to go there. The second, even if you go to markets like India or other developing world, there are a lot of internet users there. But if your model, that the business model relies on advertising, the per user advertising revenue is still much higher in Europe. So it is costly to abandon the European market for that reason. And the third reason I would say, Jack, is that Europe is no longer alone in looking to regulate these tech companies. So yes, now the European market is the most constraining one, but Canadians, Australians, South Koreans, Japanese, and, and you name it, are ramping up their regulations. And we can talk about whether US will uh, follow suit one day. But that also would then tighten the net around these companies and reduce their ability to say, we can afford for go Europe. So that, that's one, one thing that I think the Europeans still today have the power. But of course, when we go five years, 10 years, 20 years, the relative share of European market of the global GDP will be down. And it might be easier for these companies to say that, look, the European regulations are too costly. We are not going to uh, do business there. But at that time, it might be that the rest of the world has moved enough to the European uh, frame of regulating that those same constraints would be, ex- would be awaiting these tech companies in other markets as well. Okay, let's move to a very different battle that you talk about in your book. And that is between simplifying a bit between the United States and China. So talk about the battle for digital regulation and the battle for digital dominance among those two countries. 
So that is obviously the, I think, most high-profile battle that the public attention focuses, and, and for a good reason. It is an economic, technological, it is an ideological, it is a geopolitical, even potentially a, a, a military or, or battle with military connotations. So the U.S. and China are the two leading developers of technologies. They are the rival technological superpowers, and there is now a lot of animosity between, between the two. So we see an increasing attempt by both of them to decouple their tech economies from one another. But at the same time, these attempts to uh, impose export controls and inbound investment restrictions and potentially outbound investment restrictions are still constrained because in today's economy, the economic interest of the U.S. and China continue to be very closely intertwined. So the governments have these political and ideological reasons to, to become more technologically self-sufficient and less dependent on one another. But at the same time, they companies, economic fortunes often rely on the ability to, to uh, access each other's markets. So that is this kind of a creates a dynamic that I call in the book that it is a dynamic characterized by the mix of rivalry and restraints, where we see escalation alternate with de-escalation. But it does seem like that the United States, since the Trump administration and continued by the Biden administration, has been pretty aggressive at trying to cut off Chinese access to certain advanced technology, trying to limit the ability of U.S. firms to trade in the technological space with Chinese firms in ways that would assist Chinese firms. I mean, how would you characterize the intensity of what the United States has been doing to China and its impact? So I, I agree, Jack, that the U.S. certainly has been dialing up rather than down the pressure on China. And, and we've seen this balance between the commercial interests on one hand that, that speak for continuing economic engagement and then these national security interests on the other hand that then provide the grounds for decoupling. The latter seem to now be to some extent dominating. So we see um, the U.S. imposing relatively costly restrictions, costly on China, but also costly on U.S. tech companies. And in part, I think that is a response to criticism that the U.S. was for too long letting its commercial interest dominate its, its core national security interests. But if you still look at the type of restrictions, the way the U.S. is trying to conduct this policy and balance uh, its, its, its policies is that it, it, it tries to be more targeted. It uses even the word surgical, that we're focusing on the most sensitive technologies, yet we are trying to preserve the commercial interest and the, the, the two-way trade in the domains where that sensitive technologies are not involved. Okay, but it has... You know, it's been targeted, I agree, but it's also been targeted in, targeted in a way to have a maximum differential mm -hmm. impact on the ability of Chinese firms to compete uh, on things like, for example, artificial intelligence. We cut, we, I think we cut off their access to NVIDIA's most advanced chip. And I think the idea there is, is that we would have a shorter, medium term differential ad advantage over the Chinese. I mean, is that right? 
So, th so that is right. And if you look at these key battlefields, obviously semiconductors, AI, those are at the yeah. heart of this battle. But what has been hard for the US is that everything cannot be done unilaterally. It has had to ensure that its allies are also, they're not, that they are on board, that they are not offsetting the US restrictions by then continuing to provide the Chinese access uh, to these technologies. So there's been coordination of sanctions with Japanese, with Dutch, that have certain uh, semiconductor technologies, for instance. But still, Jack, I would say that there are we we there, there's more space to, to to ramp up the sanctions, or whether we even see the US go there can be explained that the commercial interests are still part of the consideration. We still have Chinese companies listing in U.S. stock exchanges. We still mainly have export licensing system as opposed to complete export bans. So many technologies continue to be exported uh, to China. So one option is we just haven't seen the end of it and there's space to, to tighten the sanctions further. Do you think there is? There clearly is space. Do you think that we're going to, to ramp up the aggressiveness? So the direction is certainly there. But one issue, Jack, is that we need to ask how effective this is. And I have some concerns because this idea that the U.S. would somehow become technologically sovereign, that, that, that we would be able to truly decouple our economies, I don't think that is a, a reasonable, reasonable goal for any country. So China is not going to be technologically um, autonomous. Europeans are not going to achieve technological self-sufficiency and neither are the Americans. So some degree of engagement will be inevitable going forward as well. But I mean, a lot of people think though that the US approach is going to be self-defeating. It's not just going to, it's going to be self-defeating because it's going to incentivize the Chinese to be less dependent and more self-sufficient and to create the advanced technological capabilities on the, in these areas that they lack. I just read yesterday or today that a story about how China had developed a powerful new chip for its Samsung phones. And that's kind of a little that it didn't have the capacity to do until recently. And how do you see that? I mean, do you see this over the medium term as being self-defeating because it's just going to incentivize China to more quickly become more self-sufficient? Um, I think it's a real concern, Jack. So there, there's been references to these U.S. export restrictions and, and various other attempts to decouple its economy from that of China as creating a, a Sputnik moment for China. So this is now really giving the impetus for China to invest in its own capabilities. And um, it now knows that it cannot rely on the US anymore. So China is pursuing this dual circulation strategy. So it continues to maintain opportunities to the extent feasible outside of China, but it also wants to ramp up both supply and demand within China. So it, it can operate as far as possible as a, a self-standing, self-sufficient economy. So yes, so the, the theory here was that the these restrictions, the whole tech war is going to make the U.S. to some extent poorer, but it's going to make the U.S. safer. And then the question is whether it actually will make uh, the U.S. safer if we see China ramping up its own capabilities and become a, a, a more forceful uh, geopolitical and, and military power in the process. So that's one thing. But, but Jack, let me mention there's another concern that I have is that 
With all these policies that the US is pursuing, it's moving very far from its own market-driven models and the values that are underpinning this model. So in many ways, the Americans are playing Beijing's game, the game that Beijing knows how to play. And, and it's pulling the entire world towards a more state-driven, techno-nationalist model of governance and implicitly then handing also there ideologically a victory to China. Yes, it's a very, we're very, the, what we've been doing with China, putting up digital borders basically and putting sharp constraints on digital free trade. It's just a, an enormous contrast from 20, 25 years ago at the height of the internet freedom movement. I mean, we've basically on those dimensions rejected the original model, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is something that I think the U.S. would need to take seriously, that that has it forgotten um, how to play to its own strengths and, and, and whether it can defend its model anymore as the source for, for peace and prosperity and, and greater freedom. And I, I worry a little bit that the Europeans are now also moving to play that same game. So the Europeans are obsessed now with strategic autonomy and technological self-sufficiency. And since they have the ability through the Brussels effect to influence the regulatory environment around the world, if the Europeans are also now converting their regulations towards sort of instruments of protectionism, I think that's exactly what the European companies are then confronting uh, when they are trying to operate in third markets, because then uh, the Brussels effect, it is a effective tool to export good and bad regulations alike. So let me ask you kind of the opposite question I asked about Europe and, and American firms in Europe and about retaliation and the like. So it's I, I've been, again, as a as a casual observer, surprised and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, surprised that China has not been more aggressive in retaliating or reciprocating the pretty aggressive measures that the United States has made. And so first question is, am I right about that? Second question, how are the Chinese, to the extent you know, receiving this? How are they viewing it? And third, I mean, at what point does the ability of American firms to work in China, like with a big presence, firms like Apple, at what point do does their continued ability to do business in China as a result of these wars uh, come into play? So, so really interesting. So, yes, it depends a little bit what your benchmark is, that how aggressive you expect China to be. Many in the U.S. say that, look, they have kept their market closed for a long time. So you don't really have Google operating there. You don't have Meta operating there, Amazon barely Microsoft, they have very minimal presence. They've taken over the rest of the world, but have not been able to penetrate the Chinese market. So that for, so China has been very effective keeping the US companies at bay. Apple is one of the few exceptions that actually has a really large presence in China. So yes, in many ways, China has already created this, this, this wall around its economy and limited the ability of the U.S. companies to, to seize the commercial opportunities there. But I agree, uh, Jack, that, that in many ways, China has also exercised restraint. So it has hesitations about Chinese firms listing in U.S. stock market. It doesn't want to comply with the disclosure obligations whereby this data would go to U.S. authorities, yet it's ha it has not fully banned those, those listings. And um, it, it hasn't been able to pull, uh, pursue this strategy of, of full decoupling. 
And in many ways, uh, China is pragmatic. And if China wants to be the technological superpower, it cannot fully afford to close uh, its engagement with the rest of the world. Because at least today, China is not yet self-sufficient, as we talked about. But couldn't it, what I really meant to ask, and I didn't ask it clearly, couldn't China itself engage in more selective, painful retaliation against the United States? And why hasn't it done that more so? Yes, I think they have some levers that they have used and could could still use. But I think the fully is, I'm I'm sort of repeating the saying that there is that deep deep commercial interest that they have that sort of prevent them from going all out and lead it fully with the ideological battle. So talk about China's success at exporting its model to other countries. I mean, how is it doing, how is it exporting its kind of methods of digital control uh, how successful has it been in doing that? So, so China is primarily exporting what I call its infrastructure. So if we think about these three, why I call them digital empires, is that they are all trying to find the ways to expand their spheres of influence. So the U.S. is exporting the private power of its tech companies. The Europeans are exporting the, the regulations that they generate. So what China is exporting and how China is increasing its influence across the world is by building digital infrastructures. So we talk about undersea cables or 5G networks or surveillance cities. And, and these are some of the examples how the Chinese companies are building this digital Silk Road across Africa and Latin America and Asia and parts of Europe. And this is a major concern for the U.S. for a few few reasons. So one is that this is increasing China's control over the, the sort of future technological standards. So if you build the entire technological infrastructure, it is going to be designed in a way that is compatible with Chinese technology. You may need Chinese vendors to maintain that technology. So China is exporting its technology standards uh, along the way. But what also concerns the Americans is that if China owns the infrastructures through which, for instance, data travels across the world, it exposes foreign individuals and governments to Chinese surveillance. So there is this concern that ultimately the Chinese surveillance state that is very much focused on surveillance within China is also then expanding along uh, this digital Silk Road and then expanding also the there's sort of the Chinese influence that can be economic, technological, political, even geopolitical. Okay, so the biggest picture question of the book is how are these battles going to play out? Just, just in wrapping up, talk about what the bigger trends in how these battles are playing out. You know, we've talked about two major ones, the the regulatory battle between the United States and Europe and the kind of technological battle between uh, the United States and China, but there are other related battles going on and along different dimensions. Talk big picture about where these battles are, how they're playing out, and how you see the the short and medium term future. Great. So one of the the claims in the book is where I arrive in the end is that the American market driven model is losing. It's at least losing the ideological battle. So the rest of the world is turning away. Uh, from this belief that the internet freedoms ultimately serve their populations well. And even the U.S. is now having second thoughts and, and thinking about its sort of techno-libertarian commitments. So you see the public opinion 
In the U.S. now support much more regulation. You see the lawmakers propose bills that would then overturn some of these market-driven commitments. So, so one is that if the, the American market-driven model is losing, then that is creating the space for greater influence for the European rights-driven model and the Chinese state-driven model. And here the book argues that techno-democracies of the world, the democratic countries are increasingly adopting a variant of the European rights-driven model. And then the authoritarian countries are then emulating at least partially China. So we see this this uh, bipolar world emerging. So not like we often say that the choices between the US and China and and Europe and the rest are forced to choose between the, the two. The book argues that ultimately the big choice that is emerging for the US is whether the joint forces with the EU consolidate a democratic front to confront the Chinese influence or whether it will let China and other digital authoritarians to prevail. So I think that's one of the the big uh, claims of the book. So basically, the EU regulates the West and China regulates the rest, basically, or or at least the non-democratic states. Is that fair? That's right. That's right, Jack. But another concern is, and this is the, the concern that we discussed earlier today, was that the Europeans are winning the ideological battle, but they are, so if Americans are struggling to legislate, in this domain. The Europeans are still struggling to enforce. So if the Europeans do not manage to actually translate those regulations into concrete market outcomes, it is the market-driven model that prevails in practice. So then it is a hollow victory for the, for the Europeans. And this is something that really concerns me probably the most, Jack, is that China doesn't have the same difficulty. So China is capable of legislating. China is capable of enforcing. The Chinese companies do capitulate when the Chinese government tells them what to do, whereas the Europeans and Americans are drawn into these really lengthy legal battles, and we are not sure if they can win that. So the question really is whether only authoritarian governments are capable of governing the digital economy, whereas democratic governments are destined to fail in that same endeavor. And if, Jack, if that is right, then ultimately the true digital empires are either the authoritarians or the tech companies themselves. And that is the kind of conclusion that should give deep, deep pause to anybody uh, who believes in liberal democracy. That's a great place to stop. Anu, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at www.lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.